Welcome to Unbuckle Chinstrap. I'm your new host, Jules Henningberg. A quick bit about me. I'm an attackman for the Redwoods Lacrosse Club. I run my own business, on-field training, as well as a founding member of the Black Lacrosse Alliance. On this show, I'll be talking to other PLL players and coaches about their lacrosse careers, their off-field pursuits, and everything in between. For my first episode, I'm interviewing the previous host of the show, Paul Rabel, a two-time world champion with Team USA, three-time professional MVP, as well as a three-time professional champion. Paul redefined what it meant to be a professional player, and he has now committed his life to paving the way for the future of the game. Listen, this first episode is wild. Paul really opened up and said some things I never thought he'd say. We talk about everything from his lackluster championship series performance, building the PLL, social media criticism, and even the why the hell he paints his nails. Let's jump into episode one, season two of Unbuckle Chinstrap. Episode number one, Unbuckled Podcast. I'm here with my first guest, Paul Rabel. The tables have turned, baby. Um, you know, obviously last episode with Unbuckled, I was the, uh, the last guest and somehow we ended up here. So I'm excited. How are we doing? I'm, I'm doing all right. I'm glad uh, you accepted the, the, the or just like uh, acquiesced to the forced invitation. I had to be the first guest. That was uh, rule number one. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I'm, uh, I'm excited to be here, man. I think you've done a, a fantastic job uh, over your short professional career and then just you know, what you've demonstrated from a leadership capacity, not only as a teammate on field, but what you do off the field. And for us, we were thinking about continuing to, to build media with our players. It, it was, it was always, hopefully it was always going to be you. And, um, you know, really excited about the future of this show and the depth of, of conversation you go in with not only your teammates, but competitors. And I know you're going to interview some coaches. So I'm, uh, I'm really pumped to be on the sideline for it. Hell yeah, I appreciate that. And it's definitely been a little bit of a, a weird journey in terms of, you know, where I was personally last year and then kind of this season and kind of, you know, not playing obviously and, and then kind of how we ended up here. But, you know, I'm excited to be on with you. I think we have a you know pretty unique relationship. I think just kind of going back to where I first met you and we could talk a little bit more about that. But, um, you know, I think right now the way I see it and, and kind of where we're at, um, I, I want to jump right into to where you are mentally with, everything that finished up um, with the championship series and kind of, you know, how things are going with you. So let's first start off, you know, I want to know how, how you thought this season went personally, you know, with the Atlas and, and kind of your thoughts and where you're at right now on, in terms of the field. Yeah. Well, I mean, I appreciate you, uh, you framing it that way. I, uh, I think as, as an athlete versus a co-founder of this business, it becomes difficult for me to, to cut through and, and kind of talk about, each of those experiences uniquely. So, um, I'll start with just as, as the player, you know, finishing my 14th season professionally. Um, I would say both, you know, evaluating my performance on field and our teams, they both sucked. Um, and, uh, and that's, that's hard. Um, you know, not, um, unfamiliar with, with playing poorly at different moments of my career, um, and typically, you know, whether it's baseball or, or hockey or, or soccer, you, if you're an offensive player, um, you know, going on, um, you know, kind of, uh, you know, sh- shooting streaks and then, uh, is, is just as common as going on shooting slumps. 
but over the course of a season, you're able to adjust, review film, get back to the practice field, try different things. Um, and in this championship series, if you look at shooting slumps that sometimes last one week to four weeks to six weeks or, or even longer, if you look at baseball, um, you know, our entire season was over a course of a two week period. So I obviously didn't feel good about my shot. I've talked about it a bit on social. I've talked about it with you offline, um, as well. And, you know, it's something that I'm addressing this off season, uh, but also not trying to take too much stock in, in, um, in the notion that this, this tournament to get through COVID was, uh, a unique experience to what any of us have ever faced in the sport. Um, and we saw some major swings. We take chaos, for example, who almost won the championship and were zero and four in the round robin. So that talk about a slump into a streak. Um, and I couldn't get out of mine really. Um, and I think, uh, Atlas really couldn't get out of ours. And we, uh, we had some great practice. We had a great training camp, felt really good. And, um, you know, won our first game barely. It was really a come from behind win against the water dogs and, and couldn't pick up any momentum. And in that short period of time, there were lessons learned, of course, like not, uh, not, you know, chalking it up to a stroke of, uh, bad luck. It, it, we just weren't able to react as other teams that were successful during that, you know, two week tournament were. So what can we do this off season? I think we, we look at, um, some of the unknowns, which is how sports are going to evolve into 2021. I think quickly uh, as a co-founder now, just giving you a, an idea of what we're looking at is, is, uh, is planning for a full season again. And I think that would be advantageous for all of us as, as players. And I think as fans out there wanting to see kind of the run of regular season, all-star break into playoffs and championship. But, um, given that you just get focused back on the, on the micro things of what you can control. So getting back into some heavy training right now, started a, a workout program with Jay Dyer and, uh, and then, uh, you know, thinking through how I want to approach uh, lacrosse skill work this offseason, too. I appreciate you sharing that. And, and I think, you know, one of the things you kind of brought up um, just in terms of like shooting slumps and kind of what this means when you're not playing well. Is this the first time in your career that you felt, you know, that you've been playing at this level? Um, and I know there's a process for everyone in terms of their career um, and, and kind of as you get older, I feel like there's some things that you, you know, you change the way you train, you change the way you, you change the way that you approach the game. But, you know, I feel like you might be at that, that point in your career where it's maybe part in terms of, you know, your game might be changing, you know, changing the way that you're going to approach the field part, you know, maybe a slump in the championship series. And then part the fact that, you know, we'll talk a little bit more about this, but you're, you know, putting the league on your back um, day in, day out in terms of what you're really doing for the sport. So, you know, how are you kind of looking at it, um, you know, what objectively um, as a player with what yeah. you're uh, you're seeing, what the issue actually is? Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to be a purely objective as as an athlete. You know, we, we know that. And I think that's why we've been able to become professionals at our respective sports. I mean, fewer than one percent of people even get a shot at it uh, of the total participation population. And it's because we we can be emotionally irrational. Like the, the thought that when I was, you know, 14, 15 years old, I wanted to be the best lacrosse player, um, you know, in the state of Maryland. And then when I was in high school, I wanted to be the best lacrosse player in the country. And when I was in college, I wanted to be the best lacrosse player in college. And then professionally and internationally, I want to be the best lacrosse player in the world. Like those goals that you set, 
um, are, are very unlikely to hit and objectively are, are unlikely. So I think for me, you know, and I think all athletes think about this is, all right, what are some things that I believe I can do? And then let me look at some data points that I can try to get objective around. So the way I think about shooting slumps is that I, you know, I have them every season, actually. If, if you even go back to my time in high school, there was a point where there was a game where I was actually 0 for 18. I took 18 shots in a game in high school. You probably did as well as high school is a, a different uh, set of circumstances. And then uh, there were college games. I, every single season, there would be two games in a row where I would have zero points. It was so weird the way that that would happen. Um, and then uh, I used to like cross compare and be like, is this common? Uh, and then coach Petro, coach T coach Benson would help me get out of it. And they do that through like practice and you're resetting, you're getting outside, you're adjusting, you're thinking about the game differently. Time and space help, right? Time helps whenever we're, we're down to like clear our minds. And when we were just back, 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 back. So the data points that I look at is, I mean, I was, I think I started 0 for 12. I probably should have been 0 for 16, um, and I, I reason I wasn't as I, as I passed up on shot opportunities in our second game against archers, because I, I knew I wasn't feeling confident and, uh, and I, and I felt like, you know, I should move this ball along, draw a slide and move along. So I bring those stats up because I'd much rather be 0 for 16 than 0 for three or 0 for four. So Jules, the way I think about it is most of my shots in my entire career have been created off of a dodge. So if I'm not getting shots, I'm not moving by my defender. And that's when it's a time to really think about my game differently. Um, I added cutting when I started playing with Rob Pinnell in 2016 when I was traded to the New York Lizards. And I was like, all right, I got to play with one of the best feeding attackmen in the world. He likes the ball on the stick. Let me fucking pick, figure out how to cut. And, uh, and I scored, you know, 45 goals that season or whatever it was. And half of them were off of a cut and I had never been an effective cutter. So I, I really paid attention to that. So that's an example of changing your game style. But look, if I weren't able to get by my defender and take shots, uh, on the run, then, then I would be really looking at my career through a different lens right now. I'm still getting shots. I just wasn't putting them on net or put them in past the goalie. And, uh, and that's something that's addressable. So, um, that's what I would say I, I, is like closest to being objective around my game. Um, and there will be a time where I'm, where I'm not getting the shots on my own. And that's probably when I'd hang it up. So no more shots are going to hang it up. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what the fuck else am I going to do on the field. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, don't, I think I think about it like two ways. Like, I guess watching you play, and this is just me from home, um, you know, kind of being, a, I guess, more of a spectator. Like, I don't know if you can argue, like, you're still one of the most dynamic players, um, you know, coming out of the midfield. And I think, you know, overall, not just in terms of midfield, but, you know, watching you play, you're still getting your hands free, right, consistently. Um, and you're still like the pop's still there. And that's what, you know, I, I think this is something people forget, um, you know, your track record, two-time MVP, two-time, um, three-time pro champion, three, um, excuse me, two-time world champion, three-time pro champion, two-time MVP. And I think, you know, the way that your career has kind of gone on the back end um, with everything, PLL, with COVID, you know, the critics kind of come out pretty quickly. Um, and I don't think it's in a way that are they're actually, you know, realizing what your skill sets still are and what you can still bring to the table. And 
I look at it a little bit differently. I look at it like, all right, his pop's still there. You know, your IQ doesn't just evaporate overnight. What is it that you're, you know, can do going into next season? And what are you thinking um, mentally? Um, and what was, you know, what was your thought process mentally, you know, when you're in this slump and kind of how are you evaluating getting out of it? And, and what are you, what are you really doing to work through that right now? Cause I think that's the biggest thing. It's just, just the mental, um, cause everything's still there. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate that. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll keep my, uh, kind of my athlete mentality going here and I feel like I should have been a four or five time MVP. Um, you know, I think athletes, uh, uh, across the board at, at all of them will have that grudge. Um, and usually MVP races are really tight. We see it every year in basketball, football, baseball, hockey, soccer, and certainly lacrosse. Mm-hmm. I had a string of uh, probably a decade or so, decade and a half, where I felt like um, sometimes I was throwing the, the ball at the net like you throw a, a pebble into the ocean. It was like anything you put on net goes. And it's something that I remind kids as well when I'm out there coaching is like, hey, I know you just missed that shot into the upper corner by a few inches and you're really pissed off. But think about the shot, that, you, that same shot you took on the run down the left side, you hit the short side high corner. Look at me, you weren't aiming short side high. <laughs> so like sometimes we have goals that hit the net that weren't necessarily where we were aiming. Those are usually ones that fools the, fool the goalies the most because they see our shoulder and all of our muscles aiming low and we're trying to shoot the ball low. That's why defenders often score when they shoot because the ball just goes high when they're trying to hit the ball on the ground. Every defender tries to shoot high to low, and when that ball goes high to high, they're fooling the goalie. The goalie's already down because they're reading their body. And it's and I, don't, I don't blame the defender because these defenders have so much adrenaline. They're taking a shot maybe one or one once or twice a game and they're also deep and they're getting a slide coming. So their body's moving faster than their hands can control. But that happened to me a bunch too. So I, I say that because there are lessons for all of us. We, uh, we, we can't be too hard on ourselves when the ball isn't going in. And we also have to remind ourselves when we score a goal and the ball hits a part of the net that we weren't aiming for. It's like, all right, good. Sometimes the ball does roll in our direction. We're very, uh, we have short term memory, uh, when it comes to that type of stuff. Um, and then for me, I think, uh, you know, looking at the, probably like the, the, the future a, as a player, I need to have, I think, better control over my emotions because I would say it, it did get to me. And I've spent a lot of time in sports psychology. I've spent a lot of time going through slumps, as I told you, I have them every year. And, um, you know, this was just a unique experience for all of us. We were, we were kind of like trapped on an island and game after game after game after game. And I was trying to be resolute and thinking like, Hey, the next one's going to fall. The next one's going to fall. And, um, and then, and instead of like thinking about other means to kind of shift my mind and think less about the shot and just more about just getting back into playing and, um, yeah, sports psychology, we've talked about it a lot. It, it, it can be a, a, a downward spiral pretty quickly. Um, and I think related to the rest of our team, you know, and, and we can also personalize things is that you'd probably go down the roster and a lot of guys feel the same way, uh, about their play. I know Rob Pennell did, and he put up a bunch of points. Um, and then I know Trevor Baptiste was down on himself, um, because his standard is 80% draw. Um, and I know Kyle Hartzell and Tucker Durkin were disappointed in their play and you may not have even have picked that up. Um, last thing I'll say is like part of, part of 
like, and this will go into, I know some of our conversation is probably going to be around media and, and social and understanding, you know, uh, kind of the consistency and fortitude of going through it is you have to be able to, you have to be able to understand that objectively people expect me to score because I'm an offensive player. There's a lot of marketing that goes behind me. It always has been for me in the sport. And I post a lot of social media content around me hitting corners when I'm practicing and stuff like that. So if you're going to set yourself up, you got to understand that if you don't perform, people are going to try to pull you down. And and that's expected. Um, at the same time, if you never set yourself up and you perform well, no one's still going to notice you. So there's like kind of that, that risk reward. And I've always believed in even the, the marketing of the league that you got to put yourself out there. The league's got to put itself out there. Otherwise there's no advantage to be had. Um, and then, and then discerning who the commenters are. So Jules, you know, the game, well, your pops knows the game. He shot me some messages, my college coaches, other pro coaches I've played with know the game. My teammates know the game and everyone's like, you know, you, you're not hitting your shots, but you've had a bunch of second assists. You had a handful of assists. You're beating your man. You're getting back. Like you're playing the game well. You're just not playing the game to the extent of, of how you expect to play the game. Um, and so it's kind of like you have to be able to discern um, amongst the negativity and the pushback what's accurate and how, how much you want to um, you know allow yourself to buy into that. And I don't think I did a great job at it. <clears throat> Well, I appreciate you being humble and, and kind of admitting that. I think, um, you know, as a person that is seen in our sport is, you know, you're really like the pinnacle in a lot of ways, not only as a player, um, but also as a leader um, and also as someone that's been able to do what you do um, with social and, and kind of branding. Um, I think you've been able to transcend the sport in a lot of ways. And I think, you know, that comes with the territory and it's just, just a fact of the matter. So, you know, with that, how, you know, I feel like you've been on this trajectory in your career, kind of going up and up and up. And I feel like now, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, you've reached this point where it's like you're moving away from lacrosse a little bit and you're moving into this space of like, you know, businessman, you know, like celebrity bit, like, and, and no other player has really been there. And I think that just comes with this territory of commentary um, and expectations from people and, and a lot of just it's added pressure that I don't think anyone else can feel because they're not in your shoes. Um, and I know that that that's a weight that, you know, if you, if you don't have never carried that weight before, you just don't know what it's like. Um, and I think, you know, we talk about the social media comments and stuff like that. How are you as someone, you know, that views the game in a very different way and we'll talk more about it with the media stuff, but how are you someone that, you know, is kind of moving into this space and processing this and recognizing that it's needed. Um, and this is where the game's going, but how are you dealing with now, you know, some of the comments are more negative. Let's just call a spade a spade where before, you know, the last 10 year run you've had when you've been on the top of the game, just lacrosse, it might've been different. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard. I, I would say that, um, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to talk to talk. It's, it's a lot different when you're walking the walk and, uh, you know, something that I've flagged before, you know, look, man, you mentioned uh, my accolades and championships. So when you're considered the best in the world, people expect you. It, it's like it, it's all or nothing. They expect you to win every year. They expect you to, to, 
you know, shatter the points record every year. And there were times with the low profile of MLL and practically zero viewership, you still had lacrosse pundits. They've always existed. And there have been plenty of post seasons where I played like shit. And, uh, you know, I remember it felt like I was the only one, me and a few of the fans and, and my pops who knew it. And then like Kyle Devitt would write about it and, and rightfully so. And that would hurt because it was, it was like, damn, I didn't play up to my expectations as others expectations. I let my team down and we didn't win the championship. And I remember thinking distinctively like, damn, as bad as I feel, imagine if this were basketball and I were LeBron James and I was getting everyone talking beef about it from like the times to PTI to, you know, the, the next sports talk radio show. And I would be like, that pain must be excruciating. And, uh, and then, you know, fast forward a few years or five years or 10 years, and we're actually building this business model into the next mainstream sports league. And we're getting, I think, objectively, if you look at statistics and then emotionally, uh, a, an, a disproportionate amount of attention to professional lacrosse. It's never existed before. And this is a different type of attention, especially emotionally. Like you don't typically dog college players the way that the fans have a license to dog pro athletes. And, and that's consistent across all pro sports. It's like, let them have it because they're pros. And like, that is where pro sports are really interesting is like fans are empowered to give their take. And in a lot of cases, especially this year, fans bet on their take. And, and that's like another level of, uh, of like really visceral emotion that lives between a, a fan base and their favorite teams or a fan base and a team that they bet on or players that they bet on. Um, so now all of a sudden it's like, I still have the same feeling of playing like shit that I had in former seasons where we lost in the playoffs or whatever. Now I'm like, Oh, this is the walking the walk. Now we're having real coverage on this. Now, like the entire lacrosse community is chiming in. I mean, there were guys from Grant Amen and Brian Constabile on the rookie side that were like, dude, played in the final four last year. And I didn't get this many Twitter mentions, not even close Right. And so that was previously the pinnacle. Now, all of a sudden, everyone's just watching. So, you know, the only regret is like, damn, I wish uh, I wish when I popped off in some of the games and I was 24, 27 and 30 that it was, uh, you know, on NBC in the PLL and some of these young heads who uh, who were born after the after 2008, which is the year I graduated from Hopkins, never see me even play in college. They didn't even weren't even born when I was playing in college. These these cats are fucking 12 years old now and like in the thick of it. And uh, and and here we are. So, um, you know, that's uh, that's like a quick history lesson on on not only uh, how I think about it, but but also the difference between now and then. That's interesting. You bring that up. Um, it's it's kind of crazy. I started playing when I was seven. Kyle started playing pro lacrosse, seven years old, and now we play together. And it's just like I, you know, yeah. I never watched you guys in college because I just I didn't even, wasn't even into lacrosse at that point. My first time seeing you play really, like paying attention to pro, was what back when you were playing for the Lizards and I played you live. I was like, holy shit, because I was like, you were like in your early thirties at that time. It was like two years ago. And, you know, I'm thinking in my head, like, you know, as guys get into their 30s, like, just not really kind of losing it. I saw you dodge Jared Newman. I was like, yo, I was like, oh, this man's moving still. 
And, um, you know, and that's kind of like where I was at with it. And then I was like, all right, this makes sense. Why this dude, you know, has 70 points as a MIDI, um, you know, playing. But, um, you know, I think it, I wonder, do you ever, cause it, it, it's his weird, it's his weird growth now. Cause it, it's, we've, you've created not we, well, yes, we, but you, you know, you're the idea behind it. Um, in terms of PLL created this like influx of media attention and that's what the sport wants. But at the same time, right. The brand you were building prior to this was not, I don't think the audience wasn't the same, right? So you've almost built a brand around yourself through lacrosse that now like all this influx of people are coming. Do you think about, you know, your brand and how, you know, you're kind of moving away from that, I guess not, not like kid space, but more like the vlogging of appealing to the younger generation to now like you're in mid thirties. Like, is that something where you can kind of move away from that a little bit and that can, you know, is that contribute to the, the stuff, the social media comments? Like, does that make, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it definitely makes sense. I mean, it's a dynamic question. And, uh, I'll, I'll first say that I remember my first, uh, world team experience was in 2010 and I was 24 years old and, uh, we beat Canada and, uh, and it was a big moment for me. I remember during tryouts, I think I was 23 during tryouts and Kevin Cassis was 32 and he, uh, was made the team was on the team. And I had kind of watched Kevin when he was at Duke and I was, uh, you know, in, in, um, either in middle school or beginning of high school and being like, damn, this old head's 32 years old, hobbling up and down the field. And, and he, the reality was he wasn't, he was grinding and he was one of the best midfielders in the world at 32. And even Sean Nadalin, who went toe to toe with John Grant Jr. Who was in his prime and Sean Nadalin pretty much locked him down in the championship game. Sean was 32 as well. And being like, damn, how the fuck are these guys still doing it? Um, but that mindset, I forget now as a 34 year old, I'll be 35 next season. And like, no matter what, I mean, I could be shaking people on the field still, but like, when you're 22 and you graduate from college and you look at a dude in his mid thirties, you're like, all right, that guy's, it's just, it's, it's a, it's a really interesting like generational and social divide. Um, and my mindset is I don't think I don't pay attention to it. I'm like, all right, I'm just a year older, but I still feel all right. So that exists. And it, it's kind of funny to hear that because I, I remember those same thoughts um, related to social, you know, there's a couple of things. One is that, my audience has grown up with me. So when I first graduated in 2008, I had a Facebook page and a Twitter account and the games changed too. Social media was so novel back then. People would follow you because it was interesting to follow an athlete or an entertainer, a musician, or even your friend to see what they were up to. So the style of posting was like, here's what I'm up to. And it, and you know, the posts, then would be so considered so boring now, but they were exciting then. I, I, there was probably a string of tweets over the course of two months where I would just be like heading to at Coach J Dyers to work out. That was it. And people would be like, oh, cool. He's working out. Like, awesome. He's working at two o'clock. He's working out. And it was, it was very different. And then, uh, and then it became about like Instagram and YouTube and like creating videos around formally just the text of what you were doing. And then the next phase as it's, as more and more people became, you know, adopting the social media, it became about like building an audience. And so then it became analytical and that's what like the social dilemma is about. And I think that's been the downward slope and the, in the uh, downside of social media is it became about building an audience. And at the time it was like more content meant more followers. So 
there was this rush like seven years ago, Jules, to basically post like Scott Rogers does now and like three to four times a day. And, and it wasn't considered annoying. It was considered like, oh shit, this, uh, this, this person's active and really interesting. And like, and, and that's how it was. And then it started peeling back because social media became more about your social identification or basically like your, your current license. And so people are very, very like obsessed with who they're following, what they're engaging with, whether they view something, comment or like it, or, you know, and it's so dynamic now. And I think it's really become about just who you are and, and having confidence and just pushing out authentically the messages that are important to you. And for me, what's important to me now is much different than was important to me when I was 22 years old. Um, the, when I was 22 years old and communicating with a 13 year old, um, you know, that person's now 25. Um, you know, the, the people who were 16 years old are, are now in their thirties and like, they're not, you know, necessarily looking to me to talk about the way that I string sticks or, you know, the breakfast that I'm eating. And, uh, so that's cool. Cause it gives me license to kind of, you know, talk about some of the shit that I'm doing on a day to day, like business, as you had mentioned, um, or, or different, you know, kind of advocacies that are important to me. And, um, and so I would say that that's largely a part of it. And the other is a little bit more self-awareness. I'm not 22. I mean, I'm on TikTok, but I, I don't, uh, I don't dance well. Uh, I think I can dub over decently, but it's kind of like, sometimes it's like, all right, dude, like, you know, you're, you're aged out, uh, leave that shit to Jules. And, and the dudes that are like in the culture and like, I'll just, I'll, I'm happy to like, just draw some amplification to it. <laughs> <laughs> and how do you like, how do you balance that? Are you, are you like, I, I want to be, you know, that young cat that kind of still with that culture, but then also like, let's, you know, you're doing shit that no one else is doing. Like, I don't, you know, yeah. I can't, I've seen your schedule before in your calendar, the people you're meeting, the folks you're talking to, the deals you're doing, like that is just on another level. But, um, you know, is it like you're trying to portray that? Or are you trying to portray the other younger Paul? Or is it both? And like, do you take that that feedback from your audience? And like, kind of how does that work? And, yeah. and that's something I've always thought about is like feedback from the audience, having the awareness, like, is this good? Is this bad? Is this just people like not understanding me? And kind of like, you know, how do you view that? Yeah. Well, I would say it's kind of interesting how I view myself now. And this is uh, something that matters a a lot to me is uh, not only as a a co-founder of the league, but also as kind of this modern athlete, this more than an athlete, athlete entrepreneur is, um, you know, just a, a person that is challenging the norm of lacrosse or challenging the norm of a lax bro. And, uh, and I, I know that I am, um, you know, a straight white male, um, which is, you know, kind of the portrayed athlete lacrosse player over the last several decades as it had become a very exclusive Northeast preparatory school sport. Um, but there are things that uh, I think the sport had wedged itself into a corner on that is not shit that I, I, I get on with. And, um, and I express that. Um, I think related to you know where I go and the things that I do and the people I spend time with, um, I've always been a very intellectually curious person. Uh, that's why I launched a, a podcast a few years ago to talk with uh, people across all different sectors of life. And um, 
you know, I, I'm as interested in, you know, uh, a 60 to 70 year old enterprise uh, person who's built all these businesses and has like a great perspective on personal and professional collision and growth. Uh, as I am talking to, you know, an 18 year old who has 45 million followers across platforms, who's figuring out how to create content in an organic way that captures the attention of potentially new audiences who might be interested in lacrosse. So being able to kind of become a chameleon is, uh, is something that I've, uh, I think I've done well over my career and, and, and frankly, the things that excite me, it doesn't mean that if I spend time with, uh, you know, a uh, little huddy that I'm uh, trying to be uh, in, in like the hype house TikTok culture as much as, you know, if I spend time, um, you know, with a politician understanding public policy or sitting with a musician that I want to get a record deal with Interscope. Like I- I'm just trying to pick off different things that that um, one um, help me understand them to help me understand ways that I can grow and three, help me understand or potentially learn ways that I can help our sport grow. I think, uh, you and I are similar in that way in terms of, you know, you talk about being a chameleon, um, and kind of just being comfortable in a lot of different spaces. And I think that's something the audience probably doesn't understand about you too much is, is the reason why you do things um, a little bit. And, you know, sometimes it's like you've created this persona and this image so much and you talk about growing up through audiences um but at the same time like you're evolving and continuing to grow as a person um and it's kind of like that weird like middle ground of explaining that to people and having them understand that about you but also just being who you are and who you've always been um and you know you talk about the social justice the activism stuff and being more than an athlete i think that's another you know, situation where people might look at you and think, okay, he's doing this, he's talking about that. But, you know, perhaps they don't know, you know, your background on it, you know, how you got into it, how you grew up. Um, Because you talk about the prototypical lacrosse player, white male comes from an affluent, white suburban neighborhood, went to prep school, you kind of fit the bill in terms of DeMatha and then Hopkins. But it's like, where did you grow up? And, and where did you kind of, you know, get your feet wet with this stuff? And where did it really start to turn for you? And, and you start to realize like, this is something I actually care about. And if I don't talk about it, right, because it's a it's double edged sword. If you don't talk about it, you're like Jordan. If you do talk about it, you're like LeBron. And it's like, where are you at with it? You know? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I'll start with um, your, your call out around experiences. So, you know, as, as we get older and we spend more time with different people and we pick up life experiences, we, we gain perspective. And sometimes we, we it changes the way we think or it evolves the way we think, um, you know, and, and also understanding to your, your previous question, we still have a bulk of our audience who are, you know, 11, 12, 13 year olds trying to figure out themselves, trying to deal with peer pressure, trying to find their interests, trying to excel at whatever it is they do. And their perspective is really important. It's often very ambitious, um, like you and I were when we were their age, but it, it lacks a, a, a real, uh, you know, kind of worldly experience. And, and that just takes time. There's no other way to inject that outside of going through it. And, and to give you, you know, an example, obviously, is that, you know, as a 34-year-old um, athlete, co-founder of a league, but even rewinding that, I mean, I've played internationally. I've uh, had sports psychologists. I've had uh, personal therapists. I've been through a marriage. I've been through a divorce. I have won as many games as I've lost. Um, I've worked in real estate when I was only getting paid 
$6,000 to play as a rookie in professional lacrosse. Then I played indoor lacrosse in uh, the state of Washington. Um, I've gotten in fights on the floor. Um, and uh, and there's just like all these different things that, that you learn over time, professionally and personally, that uh, help evolve as a human being. And so, you know, I think that's the case for all people. If we were able to now with the internet kind of thumb through the last 10 years of not only who we were, what we looked like, who we interacted with, what we said, you're going to see an evolution. And I think it's a good thing. If you don't see an evolution, then that person's probably stuck, stuck in the ground, heels dug in and, and closed off to, to other people's perspectives. Um, so, so that's like the first thing. The second is, you know, I, I know I went to Johns Hopkins, then to Matha. Um, so I grew up in Montgomery Village, Maryland. Uh, my brother and, and I uh, in a household uh, with a younger sister. Uh, Dad was a paper salesman, now works for the PLL after uh, the paper industry got uh, turned sideways by the Internet. And our, our mom was an art teacher and still is um, now over 30 years. Um, we played rec sports. I went to a public high school my freshman year. Our, uh, our our varsity coach at the time uh, was skipping practices. He was battling addiction. And so we essentially didn't have uh, a coach. We had captain's practices. I turned out to be a pretty decent freshman in the, in the state and uh, went to my parents and said, hey, how can uh, how can I pursue playing for you know a team that is heralded where I can learn and potentially play in college? And they started banging the phones and um, you know, the, the head coach of, of DeMatha saw me at a, at a, at a summer circuit. Um, DeMatha was the cheapest and still is the cheapest uh, private school in the state of Maryland. Um, and they were able to thumb me in there. And, um, and, uh, and then I worked my ass off to, to get a full scholarship to Johns Hopkins. So, um, you know, sometimes with all of us, um, you know, the content is inside, uh, inside the two, uh, inside the cover and, and kind of the back page of the book is a lot different than, uh, than what we maybe have perceived. And, uh, and that's my experience kind of growing up. I would say that related to a lot of the stuff that has been going on over the last year, um, particularly with human rights and social activism, you know, I wasn't as active prior to, I think, what we're seeing over the last uh, year related to racial injustice, I think, to, uh, you know, gender equality and LGBTQ rights that started for me from an advocacy standpoint when I started going to personal therapy five years ago. Um, and I think that I lacked psychological standing for a little bit. And I've talked about this on social um, in that, uh, and this is this goes into I think a, a larger message which is important for other uh, white men um, and white white people to hear, um, which is when you are on the side of the oppressor. If you look at you know kind of centuries of history, um, it, it's you feel even when you're aware of cohorts of people who have been discriminated against. You, you lack the confidence to advocate on their behalf. Um, and, and what you're used to seeing is activists that are part of the cohort of people who have been discriminated against doing the advocacy. And that's what really took place for the larger part of the 20th century. 
And it only took us so far. Now we're in a place where if you look at data and research supporting psychological standing is actually those who uh, in many cases are straight white males need to stand up and talk to other straight white males and other uh, white people and say, hey, like our experiences while we weren't, you know, uh, a, a part of the 20th, 19th, 18th century of, of systemic racism, and we, we, we weren't sitting at the government level instituting these uh, systemically racist uh, policies, um, we, we still are, uh, you know, we still are a part of the benefits that, uh, a lot of white people have received in this country. And that's, uh, important to say that like, it doesn't mean that I'm a bad person or you're a bad person. Um, it, it, it means that I'm aware of the access and benefits at my disposal, and I'm going to continue to try to find my best potential and meaning in life and work. And I'm also going to do my damn best to step aside, recognize those advantages and create room for those who haven't had them. And uh, that's what psychological standing is. I think that's like really important to get. And, and I think it you know correlates directly to uh, what it means to be anti-racist. Um, so I, I'd actually be curious. I, I know you and I have talked a lot about this in the past, but to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, I think, you know, I think it's twofold. I think the first way I kind of see it is that there's just this dynamic of, you know, with the last six to eight months um, of people, you know, like yourself and, you know, that have recognized, okay, like I need to do more. Um, and, you know, now it's kind of like, I feel like we moved away from, you know, the momentum, the momentum shift, as you might call it, um, where people are kind of speaking up and, you know, kind of just going out of their way to really make this a you know, front lines issue. Um, and now we've kind of moved to, okay, now that that's happened and you've recognized I need to do more, it's like, what are you doing? Um, and it's like, there's this weird middle ground of people I feel like that don't know what to do um, and don't really understand how to kind of continue the momentum. And I think that that's something you take a lot of pride in. And I think my question for you about that is like, what is the, cause I know I, I have mine, right? What is my, my why for it? You know, what is the weight that's on my back and that I feel my, you know, bearing down on me that kind of musters up that inside um, belief that this is important to me. Um, and I think that it, you need that for it to be authentic and you need that to be um, someone like yourself. So without that, I think it kind of leaves people, you know, in this middle ground, like I said, Oh, wow, I, there's a problem. I should do more about it, but do I actually care? Mm, I don't know. And, so what is your, you know, inside kind of feeling that creates that for you, that, that causes you to be so passionate about it? Well, I, I think a lot of people just ignore the history or they try not to educate themselves because once you are educated on the history of, of kind of humanitarian injustices, you, you no longer can ignore them. And you really begin to have to go down the, 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 the path of if you're going to continue to ignore or, or resist or act like it didn't exist, then you're going against yourself. And that's when, you know, as, as an individual, you, they say you have to look at yourself in the mirror. Um, so I, I think it's really important. And a lot of the stuff that we've, we've talked about over the last six months and for years is like, got to get history and education right. Um, and then secondarily is like going through the human experience tangibly. And I think sports has been really helpful for that because in locker rooms, 
uh, a lot of locker rooms and not as much in lacrosse, but in sports. And I, I played a, a bunch of different sports like you did is you get access to plenty of different people. And frankly, even from gender to race, to sexual orientation, to religious, to political views and the congregation around sports, uh, they're primarily about building the winning formula. You get to relate and kind of experience the world through your teammates perspective. And, uh, you know, kind of like Seth Godin says, who's, um, I think an important author of our time, um, who's known for his marketing, but he cares a lot about the human psychology of marketing. He was, he, he says the thing like, make the assumption that every person is good. So it, like deep down, no matter what you hear or the way that they act, it's like deep down, this is, this person is good and they want to do well. And, uh, if you operate from that assumption, I think it helps you become a more empathic individual and it, it helps you, I think, tie history and objective education information to caring about other people. And if you have those two things and you're someone like me where, you, where you're like, okay, now how can I help? How can I help others um, that maybe look and and act and sound like me understand if they uh, didn't have that, uh, access to sport or education or history. Um, and then just like generally, which I think is a, is like a, a baseline character trait, do what's right. Um, and in the end you can disagree on public policy. You can disagree on, on private institution, but like, I, I think a, a baseline for all of us is, is human rights. And, and that's for me, what, what a lot of our, our, our position was as a league. And then what my position was personally was like, this wasn't a, a, a matter of politics over the last six months. Um, just like really like the environment shouldn't be. Um, and, and, uh, you know, I, I think, I think when you look at what's happening in our country and what's happened in the past, when sports have been around, sport has actually always been at the intersection of human rights from Jackie Robinson, Muhammad Ali, to Billie Jean King, Bill, Bill Russell, Megan Rapino, today, Sue Bird, LeBron James. And it's primarily rested on the shoulders of the athlete to talk about what's important to them and use the platform of sport. And leagues and teams have stayed away from it for some reason that I think, frankly, lacks courage. And for us, it's like, okay, if our enterprise business is about our players and our players, um, you know, have and are standing up for something that's important to them, let's not only allow them do that to do that, but let's also advocate for what's important for, uh, I think, people all around the country and all around the world. Um, and that was that was like our why. And you talk about, you know, the players. I think it's it's interesting in our league um, kind of pertaining to this subject just because, you know, frankly, not everyone's on the same page about it. And I think with you guys, the position you took as a league, there is inherent risk where you're not only risking fans, right? You're risking, you know, the position that you're taking with how players perceive the league now. Um, how do you kind of, I guess, quantify that, the people that you believe weren't going to be on the same page as you? Um, and how do you kind of look at that from both a player standpoint um, and then a fan standpoint as well and kind of the risk reward 
to taking this stance because it's not an easy stance to take and it's not an easy stance to uphold after you've taken it. Yeah. Well, I, I think you, you, we had to view them differently. So, you know, players are, are part of our organization. And um, I, like I said, unfortunately, I, I feel like um, a lot of the av- advocacy for um, racial equality and uh, gender and, and sexual orientation that we have seen there be resistance in sports uh, has a lot to do with like political hijacking. Um, but nonetheless, if, if what I said in my previous, uh, segment holds true, it's about, again, education, conversations, and trying to be empathetic toward the position of whomever it is you're speaking with and, um, not grinding an ax because you feel resolute around your position or how could this person not see it the same way? Um, so with our players, we were having meaningful conversations individually and, and as, you know, kind of small breakout groups and Jules, I know you led a number of them and, uh, and that was that approach, um, related to the fans. I think, uh, you know, obviously we, we do our best to, uh, put out the right statements, uh, formally. And then, you know, I was on air on NBC talking about, um, everything we were doing as a league and, and then I've done it uh, across my social as well. Um, and a lot of players have done it across their social, but if you look at, you know, fan data, we were up in viewership, um, across our broadcast, we were up in social media impressions and video view counts and engagement. Um, so, you know, while, uh, comment feeds often, you know, shake us, individually on across our personal feeds. And then when we look at the leagues, um, sometimes comment feeds can you know look more like Yelp reviews of a local restaurant than they actually do of like the general sentiment. So we can have a post and I remind our marketing team that does 25,000 likes and we have 600 comments and you know, 400 of them are, are negative. That's a pretty good percentage on 25,000 people who have liked it. Um, and, and, you know, I mentioned Yelp reviews is like very few people. And this is what's kind of wrong with the system. They have a good experience with a restaurant or they have a good experience at the game. That's the bar. That, that's why we're paying to have a ticket to attend a PLL game. That's why we're paying, uh, you know, an, a premium on the margin of what it takes to make that same food that was served on you on a plate that, you know, is probably a plate that looks like yours at your house is like, you're expecting it to be a great experience. So you're not going to then turn to Yelp and say how great it was. It's amazing when people do, but most people go to Yelp or the comment feed to uh, kind of exfoliate their own issues that a lot of times come from their own insecurities. And uh, you got to have some discernment um, uh, around how much weight to give a negative comment. And then frankly, last thing I'll say is I have a problem with Instagram and Facebook and, and I think a tool that they should address. And I referenced the social dilemma uh, earlier, but one of the, the worst things that's happened on social media is the upvoting of comments, you know, and if you understand that, you know, the algorithms on these social platforms are built to drive engagement because that keeps people on the platform longer, the longer on their, they're on their platform, the more advertising dollars flow through for those platforms. So I know that's why they're doing it. 
But the problem is it's creating a subculture of people to say something negative because they'll get likes on it because people are drawn to uh, fight. They're drawn to conflict. That's our most primal setting as a human species is like mano y mano. Let's see how this conflict pans out. So what we're doing is we're seeding this this like stream of negativity in uh, the next generation's heads, like subconscious and consciousness, stuff that we didn't have to necessarily do. I really worry about the maturation process of Gen Alphas and a lot of Gen Zs when they're being trained to talk shit because that's going to get them more likes and potentially more follows and build an audience off of that. I was built off of the premise of showing respect and like, uh, you know, taking the perspective or learning about perspectives of others. Like I never in my right fucking mind, if having had access, which I did at one point to Vince Carter, or if I've ever had had access as a young kid when I idolized Michael Jordan and he came off a bad game against the Wizards and I met him backstage and had been like, hey man, you shot like shit. Time to hang it up. Right. I, I would, you're washed. I would never, never in my life that would never even come across my mind. Um, so some of the onus goes to these social platforms for building the tools of the way that they have. Yeah, no, you make a great point. And I think in lacrosse specifically, it's just this dynamic. We, you know, we talked about a little bit, but the platform is just exploding like right before our eyes and there's more engagement and, and more people on their phones talking about it. And it's like, we have this collection of the, in, in the community that are just on their phone, ripping it up. And it makes it seem like it's, the opinion of the entire lacrosse community when it's really yeah. only like 60 people. Um, we saw it today with the, the pennies. Um, I know everyone's on there like the penny price is $80. Just that in my head, I'm like, well, the people commenting are like talking about, you know, how are you going to grow the game with an $80 penny? I'm like, how much do Jordan's cost and LeBron's sneakers cost? And I'm like, yeah. the demographics that you guys are talking about that you want to just, you know, give handouts to lacrosse. And that's the only way it's going to grow. There are many demographics in other sports that pay top dollar for stuff that Nike, that Adidas drops. And that's just the way it is. It's the market. Adidas has a, you know, a, a level that they set prices at for things. And then you sell it and you have to sell it for the margins to get the return. And it's just how yeah. business works. Yeah, it, it's it's so divisive right now. And it's it's you know emblematic of where we are as a country um, in that people – you know, it's, it's the person. If you're trying to, again, show up to be negative and to, to, to kind of like build controversy, then that's on you. And, and like that either can be addressed or left alone. Um, but the idea of like really trying to connive something that isn't there around taking this theory of growing the game and then attaching it to a premium product for purchase as if that's the end all. They're growing the game of lacrosse by selling premium pennies exclusively. And if those premium pennies aren't either free or 10 bucks, then our game is ruined. And it's like, okay, you're talking about a private small segment of a merchandise 
store where frankly, like these, these jerseys are like, um, you know, are like your fitted, uh, custom uniforms. And, uh, and maybe like, you know, we should look at the comms around that more versus like a traditional wax penny that, you know, can be torn if you just pull tight enough down the middle. Um, but, but like, we have to remember growing the game is about access to the sport. It's about helping coaches learn the game at the youth level, rebuilding rec lacrosse, uh, we're, you know, being able to get sticks in hands, figuring out transportation on forward. That's the participation point. Growing the game at the professional level means viewership to the game across broadcasts, access to athletes through appearances. And if we're just going to like try to, again, create beef around taking a, a penny launch of a premium product and saying, because it's 80 bucks, the sport's never going to grow. It's like, you, I can't even get into that conflict. And that's one where I stay on the sideline. Cause I'm like, okay. Like it's just too long. It's like trying to solve for public policy in a debate and giving each actor two minutes. It's just we're setting ourselves up for failure. Yeah, and the same community, and because I, I see it, that's all. It's like every week I'm seeing something new on Twitter. I'm, I'm kind of similar to you. And I'm like, all right, am I going to jump into this? Am I going to kind of let this thing wash by? I just liked Jerry's retweet about it. You know, Jerry's he's in um, the business of selling clothing. He understands the process and when the final sale, what that price should be. Um, but these same people, I think, again, there's this underbelly of lacrosse. I don't think people recognize, um, and th- this is something that I, I just know this about you because we've talked to you and we have a, we have a relationship where I, I, I dig in this to this stuff, but like the actual risks that you took personally, um, you know, to start the league and to really get it off the ground. Um, I think that I appreciate, you know, as, as a young entrepreneur and someone that's trying to get you know, my feet into the business world and grow my brand and do stuff. Like, I don't think people appreciate how much you really took food off your plate to take a risk for the game. And then I think that the backlash that comes with that, when you talk about the Gen Z um, and the younger generation, these people that are just looking to say these comments, I can't imagine me being a young player um, and seeing someone of your caliber um, and meeting you and, and looking at it from the way that these kids look at it. And then on top of that, knowing you know, what you did to give up for the game. And I think it's important um, to give context to, you know, the sponsorship, um, the advocacy and what those risks are for your brand, your career and, and what that all looks like and to paint a better picture. Because I think that that's something that maybe you're, you're humble to the point where you, you know, don't think it's important, but I think that that's a piece that doesn't get talked about enough. Um, people just look at it like, you know, Paul starting the league and he's getting a bunch of money and yeah, that's it. But I, I, there's so much more to that story. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot, a number of athletes that also think that it's just like real fun to run a pro sports league and we get paid a lot of money. Um, and, and neither is the case. Um, it's, it's funny because, uh, on social, at least if you follow me, um, you know, it, it look, I get that it looks fun, um, because we celebrate the wins and, uh, sports as, as I said, from the get go, when we announced a couple of years ago in Bloomberg, uh, pro sports are just another form of entertainment and, uh, and fake it till you make it, uh, actually is derivative of the entertainment business. And, um, and and like, you know, our business isn't going to be successful talk about in year one, if we were like announcing the league and talking about the 20 no's we get with every sponsor versus the one yes every single day, because everyone's going to be like, well, this shit ain't going to happen. 
so we talk about the one yes and we don't talk about the 20 no's and and like you continue to do that and people are like oh this is momentum you know who, who used to not do that mol i remember one of the things that stood out as I was kind of the leader of our players council that those keys were passed over to me from, from Kevin Lavelle. And I would meet, you know, quarterly with the commissioner at the time, which is David Gross and a few other players. And we would, you know, we would talk about things like, Hey, have you thought about distributing the game on Twitter? Like they're now doing live streaming of sports games. And this was probably five years ago, six years ago. And, uh, other leagues haven't done it. Or have you thought about like, you know, hiring a social media manager for the league. And they were constantly saying no and also threatening us with like, hey, by the way, every dollar that we spend means it's more likely this league is going to get shut down. And I remember that like fear tactic being like, oh, I'm not going to push because I, I don't want the league to get shut down. Um, you know, when we went into building the PLL before there even was a PLL, Mike and I put together an investment group to buy the MOL and we met with them for six months and, um, you know, they were very, really resistant toward it. But the more we kind of peeled back layers of the onion, the more we found that there was like a real opportunity to try this thing out, if not through MOL, then something on our own, because that stagnation often happens in businesses where, um, you know, people, they were treating it like a real estate play where like, Hey, as this land gets more valuable, so will the house that sits over top of it. Um, and that's just not the case in pro sports. It's never been the case. And for the sports that think that is, those are the sports where college remains at the top by far. And then maybe they're an Olympic sport and they have non, a a non-pro existence. Um, the flip side is like, here's why it will also never work. Just because you have a high participation base at the youth level doesn't mean your pro game is going to be successful. There are two really successful professional leagues that have virtually zero participation base. And one is trending down faster than a 100-mile-an-hour vehicle on a 55-mile-an-hour highway, and that's the NFL. NFL ain't going anywhere. Their popularity continues to grow. Their enterprise grows, and, and youth football goes down. You don't see like octagons all over the country and this like booming participation base of young MMA athletes, but the UFC continues to trend up. So there is value in having a growing participation base, but pro sports ain't a direct correlation to whether or not more kids are playing the game. Uh, So we knew that. um, And and that was kind of the impetus. I know you asked me, it was like the risk. Um, You know, for me, I had that $6,000 rookie wage that you had. Um, and I was, you know, however many years older than you, Jules, at least 10. Um, so it was like, shit, nothing's changed. Um, and then the average wage in the MLL was $8,000. So I was lucky early on to adopt social as we talked about, but then get sponsors to hook in because I had, uh, some strong chops and understood strategy and promotion around social and they wanted to be a part of it. And that allowed me to leave my job working in real estate five days a week. So I could, uh, so I could try to become a full-time lacrosse player. Um, and then I figured out the sponsorship game, much like action sports athletes did. And I had this, you know, multi-million dollar over five year deal with, uh, with warrior new balance who, um, see so, you know, the, the chairman at the time owned four or five MLL teams and they were the largest sponsor. And I knew as we were having conversations with those same people around buying the MLL, that if we started the PLL, 
um, that they were probably going to tear my endorsement up and I would be out basically my, my income stream. Um, you know, we tried to, to do a deal with them. Even when we launched the PLO, we thought it might happen. And, and then, you know, I was out of that. So I knew going into this and Mike and I had that conversation that my income would be cut altogether. Um, and I also knew, and this was the more important thing to me, Jules is like, we were basically building in my early thirties. So I was 30 and 31. And this is during my peak time of playing. And I felt good about what I had done in my career up until this point, but I knew that like my time as a full-time professional athlete was going to go away because this thing is so complicated to build. I mean, when we were playing in the world, world games in 2018 in Israel, um, you know, I remember after a practice, I hopped in a cab and, and met Joe Ty for an espresso and uh, talked about strategy around, again, buying MLL or starting PLL from scratch. I had two herniated discs and was like wrapping both adductors for those games. And, um, you know, I was playing against Team Canada for a gold medal. And this was, you know, just over two years ago. Um, so all that shit was going on behind the scenes and, um, yeah, there's sacrifice, but, but you know what, like, as you said, it's, I, I think it's like playing a small violin here because like, we're onto something great. Um, you know, I think my impact on the sport is going to be, uh, far greater off the field than it was on the field. I hope. Um, and because genuinely I hope that there are, you know, at least in my lifetime, a dozen or so versions of me that are far more popular than what I was able to do as I was playing and, and far more effective on the field. Because if that's the case, that means the PLL is going to be killing it and our sport's going to be in a better place. So, um, that that's where I'm at and, and call it a longer term vision than most people, uh, it took me a while to get there, but, but that's kind of my head, uh, space. Oh, right yeah. now. Um, well, I believe, you know, that it's going in the right direction. I know that there's a lot of obstacles we're facing right now. COVID, um, obviously the, the most pressing one at the time, but, you know, I'm hopeful for 2021, hopeful for, hopeful for myself to get back on the field. Um, and, and that's all I got for you, Paul. I think, uh, you know, this is a great first time going on here. I appreciate you taking the time with me. Um, and, and obviously, you know, I look forward to for seeing you again and, uh, and continuing to grow with this podcast. Yeah, man. Well, before I uh, and we sign off, uh, tell everyone how you're feeling. Uh, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm interested, yeah, I'm, and yeah, I'm seeing these yeah. workout videos, dude. You know, <laughs> yeah, we're coming back, baby. So uh, I'm, you know, I went to the cardiologist uh, two weeks ago, so I had to just make sure follow up my heart. I'm all good there. And then the biggest thing was kind of, you know, my oxygen saturation levels there. They kept dropping, right? So every time I'd work out, they drop. But what's happening is like the more I worked out, the more that I would be able to go up and drop less, go up and drop less, go up and drop less. So now I'm at a point where they're kind of stable to where they should be. So, um, you know, I, I obviously have to get cleared formally, but I'm feeling great. So I'm excited to uh, to kind of keep keep growing in that process. Yeah, it's great to hear, man. I remember having those conversations with you. I was in Utah and um, you had uh, you had been declared non-contagious, eligible to play. Uh, from a from a COVID and health and safety standpoint, and then we were actually one of the first leagues because it was in early days to be like, by the way, this virus is cardiovascular, and so the doctors who we had hired to sit at top of our medical committee were like, okay, for anyone that has had COVID that are now cleared from COVID, they have to in order to get back to physical participation, go through this set of cardiovascular tests. And another example, as we talk about misunderstood, 
um, is that this process was super dynamic, not only building the medical protocol, which evolved with updated CDC and World Health Organization quarantine policy. And as point of care testing got more sophisticated, as turnaround time went from one week to three days to 15 minutes, like we were able to evolve. And then understanding that, oh, shit, this is a sport played at the highest level, different than returning back to work where you're sitting at your desk. And, uh, you know, it was, it was really hard. It was emotional. I know for you is emotional for me and, and Mike and our team is like Jules was cleared by medical protocol to play from a testing standpoint, but then got held up on the cardiovascular testing. And for those that are listening and don't know, that's why Jules came out to Utah and then ended up going home. And it was, uh, it was really hard. Um, and there was so much that happens behind the scenes that sometimes you just either choose one, not to disclose two can't disclose because it's, it's divulging too much. And, and three, it's like very complicated and you just have to trust that what you're doing internally is right. Um, and that like word of mouth from players and others gets the message there and you're just never going to be able to answer all comments, but I remember, um, I remember sitting exactly where I was on a couch in Utah and having a conversation with you and just being fucking devastated. Um, and so it's good to, uh, good to hear that things are turning, man. And, um, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be interesting. You've never had a full season professionally, like, like on, you know, firing on all cylinders. There's always like an injury. There's been trades. There's been your rookie season. Like, so when it comes, it's going to come. Uh, and I'm excited to, to see yeah, you not only excited. play this coming season, but also, uh, you know, bang other, a bunch, a bunch of other interviews out and, and, uh, and this, this podcast is in good hands, man. Yeah. I appreciate that. I'm excited for, uh, for 2021 and to just keep growing with everything. And I, I just want to thank you for, you know, allowing me to, to take over this. I know, um, obviously you have a lot going on, um, but this is something you built up and it's, it's a platform I'm excited to be a part of. Do it, man. We're pumped. Oh, with na- all right. Nails. Blast thing. Explain. What do we got? Well, you know, I've, uh, I've, I've painted my toenails for the past several years, maybe a little bit longer. Um, and that's, uh, that started out of, uh, pedicure post surgery protocol that my doctors gave me. I broke my foot two consecutive years in a row, Jones fracture. And my foot is getting really nuanced and, and not reserved for social media comment feedback. But my foot often started to get fucked up because I would get these ingrown toenails from cleats. Every season, still to this day, I lose the my toenails in my big toes. I, it's, I, think, it's, um, I think it's the way that I cut or it's the way that my foot morphology works. <laughs> tried all different things, inserts, whatever. And I'm sure we'll get comments and recommendations and I welcome them. But one of the takeaways for my second surgery was you got to get a pedicure every week. So I started getting pedicures and it's great. You get a foot massage, you clean up your, 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 your toenails and everything was working and my toenails weren't falling off. And then like the Alan Rabel in me, someone who, you know, my dad who's very frugal, you know, you're paying for a service that comes with toenail, um, polish. And I was going shit. I was I was passing on that. So let me actually get these things painted and and get the full value out of my transaction. And I remember I did it. And I first time I I painted them uh, blue, which is my favorite color. And I showed up at Coach Jay's later that day, and uh, who was my strength and conditioning coach. And there were a few other athletes at the time training there. 
and I was changing because I showered and I was changing out of my cleats and took my socks off. And everyone looked at me and was like, damn, dude, are you okay? <laughs> and I was like, why? The fuck is this guy doing? Toenails are blue. And uh, I was like, shit. When I walked in two hours ago and when I was training, no one asked me if I was okay. And all of a sudden I take my socks off and all of a sudden there's something wrong with me. And so I remember that like really landed and I was like, mm, this is really interesting. I'm going to keep painting my toenails as a reminder that like, one, it's okay to be different, be okay to be you. And two, like, just because people look at you different because of some appearance doesn't mean there's anything different or wrong with you. And, uh, and that was always like a thing. And then I started painting my toenails and like posting them on social. I remember there was like a little bit of a, a little bit of a rise that I would get out of people and be like, Oh, you know, say like negative things about me. And, and that was kind of, again, like more conviction around your, you know, chartering your own path. Um, I'll say, so fast forward and I'll get to these nails is I was watching at the beginning of COVID this post Malone concert. Uh, and he was actually playing uh Kurt Cobain set. I had no clue he had this Nirvana background in him. And it was one of the first YouTube uh, live streams that raised money uh, for uh, COVID uh, patients. And I was like, damn, Post Malone's got such great style. And I was going, I want to paint my fingernails. And I just couldn't get myself to do it. And then, uh, you know, fast forward past uh, the championship series, we just did this collaboration uh, with little Huddy. And um, I was talking to him and he and we were kind of DMing before we did the collab. And he was telling me about how uh, he got a bunch of pushback for painting his fingernails from his audience. And now all of a sudden, like, he's got a bunch of people that share photos of them painting their fingernails and they feel more empowered because of this kid taking on some courage and doing something that he felt was stylistic. Um, so in spirit of the collaboration, I painted my fingernails with him and uh, it felt pretty good. Anyway, I posted a, a video on it today on my social and a lot of people are pissed off, uh, but so is the continued chartered path. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's, uh, that's good enough for me. I'm, I'm all for it. I don't know if I personally would paint my toenails. Um, I get pedicures, uh, which are phenomenal. Um, I don't know if, if the toenail painting is, my look, but I'm all for charting your own path and give it a shot, man. Give it a shot and then, and then remove it. There's, there's a uh, toenail polish and fingernail polish remover out there for a reason. That's true. All right. I don't want to take any more of your time. I'm taking everyone's time. My, my long winded answers. <laughs> Keep up the good work, brother. Appreciate you. I'll talk to you. I want to thank Paul for hopping on with me as my first guest ever for Unbuckled Chinstrap, but more importantly, for giving me the reins to Unbuckled. I appreciate you, homie. I will not be painting my nails anytime soon, but more power to you, brother. Next week, we have on the PLL's worst tilt, Christian Mazzone. Can't wait to chop it up with my former Rutgers teammate and co-captain, one of the baddest dudes in the game. We'll see you guys next week. Mm.